Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. As schools struggle to maintain operations due to huge numbers of COVID-related absences, Governor Charlie Baker last week announced new testing options for schools. Here with me today to explore the changing landscape of education in the time of COVID-19 are Dr. Richard Malley, a senior pediatrician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Boston Children's Hospital, and Natasha Ushamirsky, State Director for Massachusetts at the Education Trust, a policy and advocacy organization that seeks to increase educational opportunity among low-income students and students of color. Thank you for joining me. Dr. Malley, probably the most basic question when it comes to making decisions about COVID in schools is how worried should we be about the impact of COVID and particularly Omicron in children? Well, yeah, that's a, that's the question we've been asking ourselves since the beginning of the pandemic. And, and I think that whatever the medical answer is about COVID in children, which I'll get into in just a second, I think it's very important to acknowledge that the biggest impact of COVID is act on, in COVID in children is actually on their parents, on their social networks, on their psychological well-being, on their physical well-being, beyond what the virus can do to them. So the biggest impact is all this collateral damage that children have been experiencing, even if they themselves have been relatively spared the worst forms of COVID-19 disease. The virus itself can be dangerous in anybody, but by and large, it is significantly less dangerous in children. Children tend to suffer either mild colds or even most many of the times just be asymptomatic. But unfortunately, and at Children's in my hospital or other places, we have had to take care of children who have serious COVID-related disease. And that's one additional reason why we all need to be very careful with children and with adults alike. And Dr. Malley, I know a lot of um, pediatricians and uh, medical organizations have come out and said kids need to be in school. Why is that? You know, I, I think it's... Uh, it's a very important aspect of childhood development to be around one's peers, to be educated in a classroom with other children who are being educated at the same time, to interact with teachers, with other adults um, outside of the family, to really try to provide children with the breadth of experience and knowledge that they need to really position them very well for the rest of their lives. In addition to that, in some communities, the schools really serve a very important purpose of providing meals, of providing a safe environment for the children to be able to ask questions and to be supported. And so for all these reasons, one of the mantras early on in the pandemic was to do whatever we could in a safe way to keep children in schools, because we really feel that that is very often a very important component of their early lives. And Natasha, a lot of teachers unions and school officials have been calling for some flexibility now to have remote learning. And we're not talking about months like we had last year. We're talking about right now, a few days or a week or two, given that some districts have literally hundreds of staff out sick or quarantined. There's some students who are out sick who might benefit from online classes. Do you think some flexibility would be useful right now? And also given our experience last year, what are the factors that need to be weighed when it comes to deciding whether to offer remote school? So I wanna start by acknowledging the fact that navigating the situation right now is really, really hard. 
It's really, really hard for local leaders that are working to keep schools open in the midst of this pandemic. It is really hard for state leaders for who, for really good reason, want to, uh, like all of us do, keep kids in school. And we need to start by saying that um, that in-person learning is absolutely critical for our kids. And ideally, all kids should be in school at all times. Um, that said, I, I do uh, worry that the current sort of rigidity of the current policy might be preventing some districts and some schools from providing better learning experiences for students that they are able to provide in the current context. So if we think, for example, of situations where we have huge numbers of uh, teacher absences or large numbers of student absences, actually, because kids are at home in quarantine, because some families might be choosing to keep kids home to protect the safety of the entire family, that um, you know, there may there there does come a point where community spread is high enough, right? Um, where once again we're in a situation where kind of the challenges, the logistical challenges of keeping kids, um, keeping school buildings open, might actually interfere with our ability to provide kids with solid support in multiple formats. And so I I, I do think that there is an argument to be made for creating kind of more nuanced policy that under certain limited circumstances for a limited amount of time would allow kids to learn from wherever they happen to be. And that requires us to have a few things in place, right? First of all, again, this needs to be for only a very limited amount of time and under only certain conditions. For example, when staff absences reach a particular point, um, when substitutes are not available to cover classes, essentially as almost a last resort option, right? Or for students who are home um, and might be asymptomatic, but being being kept at home for a variety of, of sort of safety considerations um, because they tested positive due to an exposure, by the way, for example. Um, in those cases, uh, it would benefit kids to have the option to continue to learn from wherever they happen to be. And your organization looks particularly at the challenges facing low-income students, students from communities of color. And we all know that those are the populations that have been hardest hit by the virus, but in a lot of ways, those are also the populations that benefit the most from a safe and steady school environment. How do schools form policies that will protect in particular those students? So again, keeping kids in school is absolutely critical. And to the absolute extent possible, we should be giving the option for every child to, to be in school. And then we have to think about what it's going to take to get there. Um, that means schools need to have the, the safety measures in place to be able to stay open and keep kids safe. It means that schools need to have staff in the building who are who are able to, uh, to serve kids in a variety of ways, right? Um, that might, in the current environment and in a situation of a surge like this, that might require having kind of much larger cadres of substitute teachers who are on tap, for example, regionally to serve students wherever, uh, wherever subs more substitutes are needed. Um, 
I'll also mention that as important as it is to keep kids in our school buildings, that in, its, in and of itself is also not enough. One of the things that I think has been hugely challenging throughout this year, um, and it completely understandably under the circumstances and all of the kind of mitigation measures that, uh, that school leaders are, are taking, but we have not had nearly as much bandwidth devoted to really thinking about how to help kids um, get back on track academically, how to support kids social emotionally following this pandemic. So yes, absolutely. Having kids be in school is absolutely critical and we need to continue to work on that. But we also need to also think ahead to how we're going to the academic services that kids need and the mental health supports that they need in order to really benefit from that in-school experience. So speaking of testing, uh, Massachusetts was one of the first states to create a test and stay program where a student exposed to COVID in class could take rapid tests for five consecutive school days and still come to school rather than having to quarantine. The big education news this past week was that Governor Baker announced a new program that will let schools, if they want, stop test and stay and instead have weekly rapid tests mailed to every family and staff member who wants one. The idea is this will allow schools to focus on testing kids with symptoms. And the implication is, if you're exposed to COVID in school but have no symptoms, we're not so worried about you being in school. Dr. Malley, the governor justified this by saying that around 99% of students who were in test and stay tested negative, showing that there is little in-school transmission. Is there a medical justification for saying that in-school transmission is low, so let's stop doing this intense testing of asymptomatic close contacts? You know, I, I think it's a very difficult and important question. You know, objectively, testing individuals and allowing them to stay in school after an exposure is a very good strategy because, as Governor Baker stated, most of those kids end up negative, and so it's very appropriate to have kept them in school during that time anyway. However, switching now to a once weekly test poses a different problem. The problem here is that you could envision in the worst case scenario, an individual testing negative on one day, then actually encountering the virus the next day or having enough virus to be shed the next day, during which point that child is at least theoretically in a position to transmit the virus to other individuals in the school, including other children, custodial workers, uh, people who are immunocompromised, individuals who are not vaccinated, and so on and so forth. And so one imagines that a hybrid solution could be to do this type of testing at home with rapid antigens, but perhaps at a shortened interval than once a week. Uh, this poses, of course, logistical issues and problems and costs that I'm sure the governor and others have been considering, and this is presumably where they landed in terms of a compromise. But I think many of us in the medical field are a little bit worried that once weekly antigen testing is potentially too little, uh, too infrequent to really give us some sense of what is actually happening in the school. Many companies, not to talk so much about schools, but companies have been moving towards, if they can't do daily testing, at least twice or three times weekly testing to try to capture, you know, at least a reasonable probability of catching the individual prior to their uh, shedding a lot of virus and potentially exposing others. And something like that could be considered 
But of course, there are then financial considerations and other logistical considerations that I'm sure the, the governor and, and his staff have been uh, discussing. So it sounds like you're talking about more intense surveillance testing. What what should we be doing in schools in terms of this balance between contact tracing and finding close contacts versus upping surveillance testing? But it sounds like the governor's now moving more towards a surveillance testing model as yeah. opposed to close contacts. What, what makes sense to you? Well, you know, um, I guess I should start by saying that I, I am fully on board with the view that, that this is a difficult problem to which there may not be a perfect solution. Um, you know, contact tracing is, of course, something that's very important to do when you have a low number of cases because it's then feasible and you can try to contain the infection early on. It becomes not only impractical, but frankly useless when you have enormous numbers of cases because by the time you've actually traced a contact and, and spoken with that individual or, or the group of people who were contacts, very often it's it's too many days after the event for it to be really useful. In the case of children, I think there are at least a couple reasons why testing a little bit more frequently would make sense. One of them is to provide reassurance to parents that there's actually a safe environment for their children. So you, you probably know, Shira, that people were also doing, but it was not uniform, a sort of pool testing to try to get an idea of what is going on in the classroom. Uh, if you have a pool of say 20 children who provide their sample at a certain you know, frequency, and that sample is repeatedly negative, that's very reassuring for parents. And it provides them a sense that they're not sending their child into an environment where that child might pick up the virus and get sick themselves, or potentially, bring the virus back to their home where they might expose somebody who is immunocompromised, elderly, hasn't been vaccinated, and make that individual quite ill. So for that reason, I think that some hybrid solution where you envision a higher frequency of testing, you certainly for a significant exposure, I think it makes sense to test uh, the individual, uh, particularly and especially for those children who are too young to be vaccinated, because we are trying to contain this virus um, until the day comes where enough people have been vaccinated and where enough um, sort of immunological protection exists so that this virus is no longer quite as dangerous as it is today. And Natasha, how do you see the role of testing in schools? You know, what kind of protection does it provide for children? What kind of protection does it provide to families? Versus is there a psychological burden of constantly subjecting children to these tests? How, how should schools be using the tool of testing? I would default to Dr. Malley, uh, largely on this question and on the question of the impacts, uh, both the positive and negative impacts of testing on kids. I will say and stress the point that Dr. Malley was just making about the importance of trust. Um, and I think one of the benefits that that uh, routine testing provides is perhaps increasing families' comfort with sending their kids to school, knowing that that testing is happening, knowing that there's greater chance of cases being caught uh, earlier, right, uh, may help increase trust with families. And I think any shift in testing policy have to include a very strong communications component, which frankly is something that we haven't been great at um, as, as an education system. We need to be able to explain to parents 
what what is being done, why it's being done, and convince them, frankly, that what's being done is still going to keep their kids safe. Otherwise, again, you're going to have families that are having to make really difficult decisions for their kids uh, in order to protect the well-being of both the child and the entire family. And there's been a lot of talk about moving forward, you know, moving from the pandemic phase to a virus that's endemic, meaning something that's like the flu, it's around and we learn to live with it. So Dr. Malley, when will we know we're at that stage? And how do we think about finding the right time to start moving away from some of these precautions as a society and particularly as we're talking about today in the schools? Yeah, this is of course a absolutely critical question you're asking. And, and I, I think the only certainty uh, that we can have is that we're not there yet. Um, I think with the surge of Omicron, which uh, you know, in, in, in Boston, for example, there's some very positive data, very positive, uh, you know, very encouraging signals that the virus is uh, sort of, the peak has been reached and we are hopefully on the decline right now. I think that's encouraging. But there are many parts of the country where that's not the case. And also, uh, it's important to recognize that this virus, unfortunately, uh, has sort of local uh, distribution types. I mean, you it's not one size fits all. There are some areas in Massachusetts where you have a lot more virus than others and certain communities are suffering from it a lot more than others. So we're not there yet. There will be a time, I hope soon, where um, a significant percentage of the population has either been vaccinated or, you know, unfortunately exposed to the virus in some form and has generated enough immunity that we hope this virus will become more like something that we experience, as you mentioned, with the flu, where it might be seasonal. It might be a disease that we really worry about in individuals who have no immunity to it, like young children or the elderly and the immunocompromised whose immune systems don't really allow them to fight it off as well as we would like. We're not quite there. We um, certainly will be, uh, we are getting closer by vaccinating more individuals. Uh, and we also, I hope soon, will have greater availability of some of these pills that I think your listeners have been hearing about, uh, in particular one called Paxlovid that has excellent efficacy at uh, really reducing the likelihood that an infected patient with COVID ends up in the hospital. Right now, these pills are hard to come by. Uh, the company that makes them is really trying to gear up the production and sort of distribute it more widely. But I think at some point it will reach uh, enough of a uh, sort of stockpile where individuals who are known to be infected, which for example, could be picked up by a rapid antigen test, will then immediately start taking uh, these pills and it will dramatically reduce the risk of the worst outcome, which is hospitalization or significant problems from COVID-19. I think a combination of all those factors, increasing vaccination, better education, exactly as, uh, uh, as Natasha was just saying, that's absolutely critical. Uh, it's very confusing for parents to hear that this virus is mild in children, but of course everybody should vaccinate their children. It's, it's a confusing message, even though I agree with both statements, it's a confusing message for people to understand. So we need to be better about vaccination. We need to be better about messaging. Hopefully pills and other therapies will be uh, more widely available. And ultimately I hope this virus will become one of these things that we live with rather than a virus that dictates how we live. 
Natasha, as we think about getting to this point where schools might have to adjust protocols, who should be making those decisions? State, local officials, the feds, and what will schools have to think about when making these decisions? That's a great question. I think uh, this is one of those situations where collaboration between multiple uh, sort of multiple entities of levels of government is absolutely critical. Uh, we, uh, I, I think education leaders would frankly benefit from stronger guidance, especially any guidance that would increase predictability um, of these situations. For example, are there certain levels of community spread where we're likely to see the kinds of operational challenges in schools that we've been seeing over the past few weeks? Knowing that ahead of time may, may uh, allow education leaders to plan for these kinds of situations better, right? So stronger guidelines and benchmarks state that are statewide, I think would certainly be helpful. At the same time, I think we need every district to have a plan in place for what to do in case of a surge. As we think about this virus becoming sort of a part of our daily life, that doesn't mean that we can pretend it's not happening, right? Pretend that it doesn't exist. It means that we have to adjust the ways that we operate to the reality of our current situation. And if that situation is going to include surges, then we have to be prepared for those surges so we can handle them without the kind of upheaval that frankly we've been experiencing over the past few weeks, both for families and for educators. Um, we need resources in place and, and safety measures in place, again, such a protective equipment and so forth, the things that schools need in order to remain open as much as humanly possible through even through surges like the ones that we have been experiencing. Um, and we also need to make sure that we're leveraging the, the kind of resources that we have in the learning that's happened over the past few years about technology, for example, making sure that our kids can access learning options, again, regardless of, of where they happen to be. I think we have time for one more question for each of you. So I'll start with you, Natasha. Do you think there are ways in which COVID will forever change education? You know, I, I, I think it could. Um, and I think it could in both a good way or a bad way. It really feels like we are standing at a fairly... Um, pivotal point and a moment of both immense risk and immense opportunity. Um, right now, we are in a place where in an education system where disparities between different student populations and between different districts and schools were already huge, right? Massachusetts already had vast differences in, in student learning experiences and outcomes that run along the lines of race, class, um, and other uh, student characteristics. We know that the pandemic had vastly different impacts on different communities and different student populations. And we know that those disparities have frankly widened as a result of the pandemic. If we go back to just doing school the way that we were doing school exactly as we did before, we really risk those disparities becoming a permanent fixture of our system. And that would have huge negative implications for hundreds of thousands of students and families across our state. I think we also have learned a lot 
We've learned a lot about technology. We've learned a lot about being more flexible. We've learned a lot about the critical importance of really strong partnerships between schools and families. And the question is, can we capitalize on that learning? Can we really try to do things differently moving forward for students in order to mitigate the impacts of the past couple of years? And then in the process, learn how to serve students better from that experience moving forward. I have the privilege of working with a, uh, a group of advocates of civil rights, this, um, social justice and education groups from across the state through a collective effort called the Massachusetts Education Equity Partnership. And together over the past year, we worked on, on creating a toolkit that really is meant to help districts think about this very question. How do we leverage what we've learned and how do we leverage the frankly millions, billions of dollars in resources that are on the table right now from both the federal government and the state in order to uh, make sure that as we come out of this pandemic, as we shift back to sort of more quote unquote normal life, right, that um, our kids are coming back to schools that support them, that are able to be sort of affirming supportive places for all of our students that help all of our students thrive. And Dr. Malley, turning to you, we now have a generation of kids who have spent two years of their life living in a COVID environment. Do you worry that this will have a long lasting impact on children and how do we fix it? You know, it's, it's, it's a real important issue that um, keeping schools open, for example, is at least one way to try to moderate the impact that this virus has had on our, on our kids. Uh, we all worry that a lot of children are suffering in ways that are not measurable uh, because as we mentioned, COVID-19 doesn't make them quite as sick as older adults, but they are still suffering nonetheless. Uh, one example that I think many of your listeners have no doubt heard about is the very sad epidemic that we're experiencing in pretty much every state in the US of psychiatric illnesses and psychological disturbances in children. Some of these were already on the rise before the pandemic. And, and I think many people expert in this field, other, you know, not me, but others have, have sort of uh, opined about why that might be the changes in the sort of uh, family structure, the changes in, in sort of the access to social media and other things that might have predisposed some kids to sort of feeling ostracized or bullied by others that, that contributed sadly to uh, uh, sort of mental discomfort or mental illness, to which you then add some financial instability, deaths in the family with COVID, uh, loss of jobs, uh, loss of security overall, and the anxiety that children no doubt feel very acutely when their parents and their close relatives or anybody around them is feeling stressed. So I, I worry very much not only about the educational impact that might unfortunately uh, sort of preferentially affect children from lower socioeconomic status or um, children of color. These are, these are very important factors. But on top of that, I'm also worried about the psychological damage that this pandemic uh, has caused on so many of us, including especially, I think, uh, young children and adolescents. One way to fix this is, of course, to try to dedicate as many resources as possible to trying to preserve and improve the, the sort of 
mental and physical health of children. It's a very difficult task. It's difficult to do in the context of a pandemic where we're having all sorts of other priorities that, that uh, are, are being mixed uh, in the equation. But I think focusing on how to keep our kids in a safe environment, in an environment where they do not worry about losing their homes or uh, where their next meal is going to come from or that their parents have those concerns, that should really become one of the most important priorities over the next several months. And you can read more about COVID and education policy at commonwealthmagazine.org. Dr. Richard Malley of Boston Children's Hospital and Natasha Ushmirsky of the Education Trust, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. <laughs>